For listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The World Bank cuts its global growth forecast, citing China, the United States and Russia. Mainland firm Huawei will hire 5,500 more workers in Europe. And famed economist Nouriel Roubini says it's schizophrenia in what the stock and bond markets are telling you. In other words, they seem to be telling very different stories. Uh, consider my headline there about the World Bank and this little tease. I think we're very complacent about the Federal Reserve and this promise to keep interest rates on hold for a long time. The labor market keeps getting tighter. That's John Riding from RDQ Economics saying that U.S. rates are going to go up sooner rather than later and probably faster than you think. That seems to be sort of schizophrenic or at least the other side of the story than from what we heard from the World Bank there. Well, anyway, we'll try to sort it out for you this morning. Our guests include Ben Collette of Sunrise Brokers. He'll be talking mainly about Japan, but overall conditions as well. Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide will be with us. We're talking about territorial disputes between China and its neighbors. And logistics expert Lu Yufeng of Manhattan Associates will be here. He will tell us about changes underway to revolutionize the stocking and ordering process for Asian retailers. So a little business on the ground there for you. And in terms of markets, uh, the Nikkei up 22 points in early trading, 15,017. In Australia, the ASX 200 down three points at 54.45. And the Kospi and Seoul is down a couple of points too. In terms of currencies, not too much change. The dollar yen, 102.32, very little change. The euro is at 1.3539, so also little change. And the pound is worth 12 Hong Kong dollars, 98 cents. So the World Bank is cutting its global growth forecast. It sees weaker outlooks for the United States, for Russia and China, and it calls on emerging markets to strengthen their economies before the Fed raises interest rates. More now from the BBC's Andrew Walker. The crisis in Ukraine, a slowdown in China and political strife in several countries have contributed to a downward revision of the forecast. The World Bank president, Jim Yong Kim, said growth is far too modest to create the jobs needed to improve the lives of the poorest 40%. Stronger performance in the rich countries is likely to help and the bank does predict that next year the developing nations will gain some momentum. Nonetheless, a World Bank economist accepted that three years of disappointing figures raised questions about how long this slower growth will persist. The bank predicts the world economy will grow 2.8% this year. That compares to a January prediction of 3.2%, so somewhat slower. Uh, the U.S. forecast was reduced to 2.1% from 2.8%, while the outlooks for Brazil, Russia, India, and China were also lowered. General Motors CEO Mary Barra says the number of deaths tied to defective ignition switches could increase when an independent compensation plan is completed. She said GM's tally of 13 deaths was based on the information that the company has right now. She said that that figure could grow in the weeks ahead. But the AP's David Melendi reports that Ms. Barra also said she doesn't think there are other problems out there. 
GM CEO Mary Barra says there's no sign of lurking safety issues like the faulty ignition switches blamed for at least 13 deaths. I have nothing to conclude that there's anything like this, and, you know, we've been digging pretty deep. Barra told a shareholders meeting that GM will do all it can to compensate those hurt as a result of the ignition switches. We want to make sure that everyone that was harmed, uh, you know, uh, serious physical injury or lost a loved one, that we do the right thing. She said she doesn't know what the total cost of that will be, but employees are eagerly accepting the challenge to make sure it never happens again. In markets, China's Southern Airlines has risen the most in four months. It led the gainers among big Chinese companies trading in the United States overnight. Traders cited the central bank's move to boost lending. The Bloomberg China U.S. equity index up 1% in New York to a three-month high. Weibo also advanced. Credit Suisse recommended that investors buy the microblogger's stock. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up just two points at 16945 The S&P P500 was flat at 1950. Well, some traders are making the claim, as you heard earlier, that investors have become a little complacent in markets. You note that volatility is at a multi-year low. Scott Wren is one of those strategists who shares that view. I think there is some complacency. Certainly, if you look at the VIX, it's below 11 today. That would typically mean people are pretty complacent. But I think when you have a very dependable, modest growth rate without a lot of inflation, you know, it, it, it makes sense to me that the VIX modest is low. Growth rate. Yeah, so he was saying that it makes sense to him that the VIX is low because rates are low and, and growth is coming back. Uh, John Riding thinks that investors are complacent, but he thinks they're complacent about the U.S. Federal Reserve. See, I think we are, and I think we're very complacent about the Federal Reserve and this promise to keep interest rates on hold for a long time. The labor market keeps getting tighter. Today, job openings surged in April. There's a lot more jobs going begging now than there was just a, a month ago. He cited the same comments from Fed President Jim Bullard that I played for you yesterday. Jim Bullard yesterday pointed out that we are now closer to the Fed's macro objectives of inflation and unemployment than we have been 75% of the time since 1960. And rates are still at zero. So that's John Riding of his own firm, RDQ Economics. U.S. Treasuries were down overnight. Yields up. The 10-year yield was up four basis points to 2.64%. Let's say good morning now to Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide. Mark? Good day to you. Hi, Brian. Not that you're the market guest this morning. We no. want to talk about regional disputes. Uh, but um, there, there are a couple of interesting things about the U.S. that I wanted to get your take on, and then we'll flow into that. And by the way, uh, looking at uh, European markets, the FTSE 100 was just one point down. But the DAX put on further gains. You know, it just crossed 10,000 yesterday, first time ever. Up 20 points today, 10,028. The CAC up uh, five points at 45.95. And I mentioned that Huawei was going to hire an extra 5,500 workers in Europe. It obviously sees some growth uh, uh, coming back there. But Mark, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the program. My, p- my pleasure, Brian. Well, one of the um, comments that are made by John Riding is that employment is actually getting better faster than what some people think. And I wanted to ask you about this. I saw something from Wells Fargo yesterday uh, getting at the notion that, you know, all these new jobs are crummy jobs, that they're all you know yeah. low-end jobs. And this report from Wells Fargo said, actually, there are a lot of new jobs 
in the past uh, six months that have been created in business services, so lawyers and, and accountants and these types of people, designers, and that it's matching now that the number of high-end jobs is matching the number of low-end jobs, and there's a big chunk in the middle as well. Do you get that sense? Well, it's, it's hard to tell, especially this early. When, I talk, when we talk to companies, and, and I chair a group of, uh, of regional CEOs, but they talk about the U.S. as well, they, they, are, they are guardedly optimistic about not only the job situation, but about the economy coming back and do feel a little bit more confident about investing in the U.S. and, and other developed markets, perhaps a little bit more so than some emerging markets these days. So in that sense, yes, but I, I think it's way too early to, uh, to make that judgment yet. And do you think that it's way too early to worry about higher interest rates then? No, no, I'm not sure about that. I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in that situation, but, uh, you know, Judging what we've seen in the past, uh, wouldn't be surprised by uh, by at least a, a movement in, in that direction. Yeah, when you look at what the Fed claims is the uh, uh, the neutral rate right. of unemployment, that seems to be the key. And we used to think of it as about four and a half percent. It seems the consensus now is that it's higher. We're around um, the low sixes, six point three percent. So it it's may not close. be that far away. Do you think that out here in Asia that that investors and business people are uh, cognizant of the fact that it may be a little bit sooner than later on rates. Yeah, I, I think I think there maybe it's not in the front line of their thinking, but but for some some companies it is. And and one of the things that's that I think is is pretty common around companies. I've just been talking to several of them that are looking at doing their forecast for the for the next few years. They feel that it's particularly uncertain. They really are having problems, partly because of that reason, partly because of what the World Bank just said about perhaps lower growth than expected and, and what the quality of that growth is, making what they feel is are, are reliable forecasts going forward, even in the even in the short term. Yeah, well, it's certainly interesting. Uh, I don't have too much on Noriel Rubini's comments about the schizophrenia uh, that you see out there and the way that the bond market looks at what is happening versus the way stock market investors believe what's happening. So we'll leave that. Uh, for I, I, think, I think they feel a little, just one quick comment yeah. on the on the World Bank forecast. Uh, general feeling is that India, they may have they may have looked at the low side a little bit. I don't know if they took to, into account uh the the recent election and what what Modi Render and, Modi, and yeah. you know and also the central bank governor are are trying to do if even if they succeed halfway India is going to look a lot better than than it has in the past few years. So have you been buying Indian stocks? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if that translates into stocks, but yeah. but certainly in terms of of investors, especially foreign investors looking at India again and some that are already there, uh, you know they they might have some opportunities pretty soon. Now you have been expressing um, fears of of these tensions between. China and some of its uh, neighbors, and that it's starting to have a real impact on trade flows. Uh, can you highlight that for us? Well, you know, especially Japan, and I think you've probably talked about this on on your program, that Japan's exports to China have fallen about 20 percent since the 2012 uh, anti-Japanese riot, riots, despite, a, riot, despite a, uh, a fall in the yen. You know, a considerable fall of the end of about 18%. So, you know, and, you know, it's had a little effect on Korea and so on. It's a question of, of course, it boiling over and this complicating matters as well. And all the, you know, all these countries, especially China, is undergoing a, an economic transition as well, which probably raises the tensions a little bit too. In the, in the short run, obviously it, it affects growth and you can have confidence that maybe in the medium term it's going to strengthen growth and strengthen the economy overall. But, you know, that doesn't always satisfy shareholders. 
shareholders or or, or nervous people in China that are trying to raise their income and and and, and buy houses and uh, support their families. Do, do you so see this, the, this raises it all? I think. Do you see the recent behavior of China as? increasingly increasingly assertive in terms of its territorial claims. I think it's seen that way and you know it was it was perhaps symbolized by that that conference that was held a couple of weeks ago in Shanghai where not only the Russian president was there but the various stan presidents Iran and so on and you know although maybe uh, the certainly the uh, the south china and east china sea uh, situations were raised it wasn't the center of of the discussions but at the same time it probably raised the stakes a little bit does it affect the big um, the big economic zones like the US and uh, and Europe in terms of the sea lanes well you know that's that's key and of course especially for the US which is which is the which seventh fleet is out there and committed to uh, to keeping those sea lanes open, plus you know obviously having closer relationships in some ways military relationships with much of ASEAN these days. We've seen it with the Philippines, we've seen it with Vietnam, uh, with Singapore for for some time, and uh, you know I think that's probably seen as as threatening by the Chinese, and of course. Another symbol is the uh, the Vietnamese and Filipinos apparently playing uh, a little football match on one of the Spratly Islands, which which drew some ire from the Chinese foreign ministry as well. These are small things, but of course, what we're worried about is it is it boiling over? It's already affected some some trade, and you know, with all these other things going on, which you've described in your program every day, this is what raises the temperature. Aside from Japan and Vietnam and the Philippines, I mean, those are the three those obvious are ones. ones. What are some of the other countries' uh, feelings about uh, this ambition that China has been showing, if one indeed believes that they are getting uh, aggressive yeah, and, territory? And, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and I think it's mixed. You know, you think that, you know, pragmatic considerations, because everybody's so tied. So, you know, the other side of the equation is, Everybody's tied to China, and China's tied to everybody else. We see that from the trade figures, how you know the biggest market and the biggest supplier uh, for all these countries. So at the same time, that's that's important as well. I guess Malaysia to some extent, uh, maybe Thailand a little bit, uh, not so much Indonesia, but Indonesia has has its own issues, and of course Singapore has always had a, a close relationship with the United States. On the other hand, so far uh, Cambodia and uh, particularly Cambodia, maybe. Maybe Laos have been pretty friendly to China and are, are heavily dependent on Chinese support. You know, you're going to kill me uh, to ask you about this because you weren't warned. But uh, <laughs> in terms of Occupy Central, because you know this is something that um, you know is is definitely on the front burner now here in Hong Kong. And uh, given you know the comments, the white paper that we saw yesterday, do you think businessmen are increasingly uh, business people are getting increasingly nervous here in Hong Kong? Well, you know. Here in Hong Kong, I think I think probably to some extent, and I think the white paper, even if you take the view that it didn't say anything new, the timing and the and the language, I, I mean, think it's a would, would let's, be let's, yeah. Let's would, would, I think people would take music. it as that. In terms of in terms of all those regional companies that are uh, that base their regional operations, international companies that base their regional operations here, I think they don't look at this day by day. They will look at it if there is an Occupy Central and it does affect their business. But many of them, as I've said, I think on this program before, don't spend much time in Hong Kong. It's not the major part of their business. And as long as Hong Kong works well for, them, for their circumstances, that's fine. But at the same time, these kinds of things do threaten a, a different situation and, and, uh, and raising the stakes quite a bit. And then it obviously could have an impact.
Okay, Mark, hang on for a moment. Uh, we're still scrambling, trying to get one of our other guests on the line from Japan, Ben Collette. We may not be successful in that, and we can talk more. But there was an interesting uh, report out from Oxfam overnight. Oxfam is, is running, I guess you'd call it an alternative World Cup, to try to highlight the gap between rich and poor in the countries competing in the tournament. We get more now from the BBC's Mark Doyle. The winner of the Inequality World Cup, in other words, the country with the smallest gap between rich and poor, is Belgium. Losers in the early rounds with a gulf between the richest and the rest would include the hosts Brazil, one of the favourites in the real competition. Several other countries in Latin America also fare badly in the Inequality World Cup. It's a continent, according to Oxfam, where the gulf between rich and poor is staggering. As well as being a blatant attempt to capitalise on the football, the inequality rankings do raise some serious points. The aid agency says that while Latin America has a big gap between top and bottom earners, it is one of the few places in the world where income differences are reducing. Mark, do you think this is one of the issues of the day? Is this a- one of our biggest issues? Abso- absolutely. It's, a, it's an issue across the region, of course, in Hong Kong as well. You know, Hong Kong's not Brazil in in that sense. Our poor are not, for the most part, in in those kinds of situations. But the gap is tremendous. And, of course, what that does to expectations and to job prospects and obviously prospects to to get a place where you can live and actually actually own a home, uh, this this has a a tremendous impact. And it's fueling unrest and, of course, helped by social media and – and, and other aspects, I think it's, a, it's, it's a, certainly across this region, including Hong Kong. All right, Mark. Uh, looks like we have another guest on the line, and we still have uh, Mr. Liu waiting. So I'll say goodbye to you for now, and thank you thank very you. much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide. I'd like to say good morning now to Michael Xia, sales trader at Sunrise Brokers. Uh, Michael, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. Eh? Yes, um, we're looking at um, some pretty strong economic growth numbers, I guess. Uh, the Japanese economic growth uh, out recently uh, suggesting that the economy grew 1.6% in the January to March period, uh, revised up from one5 If you look at the annualized growth, 6.7%. Um, is that good or is that expected? I think it's a case of, you know, there is certainly expectation that uh, growth has come through. But I think the looking forward, the um, you know the the sales tax increase that just came online uh, back in back in uh, April um, will cause some concerns in terms of you know or, you know some some kind of concerns in terms of the uh, the outlook for for future growth in uh, in Japan. Um, I think that, you know the the government itself uh, is is certainly active and now you know economics is you know getting uh, people are, are focusing on its third arrow which is you know on the, on much of the stru- more structural reforms here and we are you know in, in the next few days actually they will be uh, focusing on the casino uh, bill mm. which we think that is going to be something that will be passed through quite quickly at least in a in a it may be in a short you know short term diluted form so to speak versus uh you know a very you know a, a much sort of longer term strategy here because the key here is is that they need to keep boosting fiscal revenue um, tax revenues which you know obviously sales taxes come through uh to help uh, to pay for the uh you know the the the, the boj um you know uh, monetary policy that has so far uh excite or you know ex- returned excitement to the overall market uh, much 
seen in last year. Um, so to, in order to sustain uh, or to maintain the growth, but also the key projection really is, is, is to actually get in, you know, CPR or inflation to uh, 2%, um, uh, to pay for that, you know, they really need uh, ideas you know, or, or you know, to, first of all, you know, growth and consumption-related type uh, uh, push, you know, policy, which will, bring in, you know, which will bring in tax revenue to offset that, uh, you know, the, all these stimulus measures. But if they approve the gambling, which mm-hmm. actually I had heard was probably you know, longer down the road than we thought, but you're telling me that it's uh, closer than what we thought, so that's interesting, something new. If they do, how long before any revenues are seen? I think actually it could be a lot more immediate than uh, people realize in the sense that because, you know, the, there are uh, at this point uh, pachinko operators in Japan, which, um, you know, at this point are in this gray zone. Um, so, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, much of that, you know, the, the winnings and so forth don't actually have any major tax uh, implications at this point. But by, uh, you know, allowing sort of some kind of legalization of the two, the, you know, the, this industry, you know, the, the, the casino bill here, it could actually bring in, uh, you know, indirectly uh, revenues, you know, in, in the first instance. And also it could, you know, potentially allow the uh, operators, you know, that, that have holes at the moment to modernize, to, um, you know, to, 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 you know, to broaden their sort of customer appeal, which obviously at this point is much more sort of old, you know, traditional pachinko uh, people. But, you know, you, you, know, you have, uh, you know, uh, makers like Konami, which have, uh, you know, world-class uh, slot machines that, you know, that could be, you know, quickly, in, you know, replaced into the, uh, in, into the environment that could provide uh, interesting tax revenue for the, you know, for the government. So okay. All right, Michael, thanks very much for the input this morning. You're welcome. Michael Shaw, sales trader at Sunrise Brokers on the line from Tokyo. Well, we wanted to look a little closer to home now with this final segment. The Retail Expo underway in Hong Kong is highlighting some new ways that for fashion companies and other retailers that they can become more efficient thanks to new technologies. We're joined by Lu Yufeng, Managing Director of Manhattan Associates for Greater China. Good morning. Good morning. Very glad to be here. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, topic, uh, talking about some revolutionary new trends in terms of stocking uh, for fashion retailers. Uh, lay that out for us. So I definitely see some uh, uh, trends going on in uh, fashion retail. I would like to highlight three uh, major trends. One is the social and the mobile shopping. So social media and the mobile apps had uh, an enormous impact on retail sector last year. Uh, take Alibaba's, uh, uh, for example, this double eleven event. They have 1.7 billion mega sales in that single day. So that uh, demonstrates the social and mobile shopping have a bigger trend. A second is uh, big data. The data analysis in retail sector is now so advanced that uh, customer transactions, online conversations, and the shopping habits can now all be absorbed by retailers in real time. So brands can understand better how to service their customers. And then it's it's new consumer technologies uh, go mainstream and also social apps impact. For example, like uh, this uh, VChart now is also opening 
you know, uh, social media store, so Challenger Alibaba, and also DD Taxi, which is uh, another version of Uber in China, yeah. which has tremendous success in China. That it's become every day's people's needs. They when they take taxis, you DD Taxi. So I see these three trends. Uh, well, it's about time because if you ask me, the retail industry has been kind of slow in in really getting with it with new technology. For instance, you go into let's say a typical retailer, and you know you ought to be able to get any size uh, to fit you. You ought to be able to at least order something that within say a very short period of time is there. You ought to be able to see, for instance, what certain fashions look like on a shape that is similar to your own. I mean. You can you can rent a room in a house or an apartment on the other side of the world, as I did in the Czech Republic, very easily through Airbnb. And you mentioned uh, you know Uber and and uh, Didi Taxi and these. Why is it taking so long for retail to get caught up? Uh, because uh, so basically, retail uh, have all this slow uh, trend to adopt the technologies, right? So uh, uh, basically, now when they want to try to take the online orders and the, the store. So the consumer is more demanding now. With this digital revolution, you know, uh, give this unprecedented convenience and control into the customer hand. The customer they are in control. They cannot wait. So once they want something, they want whenever, where, and how it how it wanted, and you have to deliver. If you cannot deliver, basically they will change. They will change to other stores. So our consumers' behavior um, change is happening faster than, let's say, the stores can keep up. Yes, definitely. Basically, uh, the consumers once they have control, they won't come back. So mm-hmm. the business have to adapt. It's a it's a it's a fact. So the so the brand maker they have to respond, uh, no matter how customer want to interact with with brand, whether it's in store or online. So uh, without adaptation, they, they they will they will fail. Tell us about Omnichannel. What is this? What sort of solution is this that you're offering? So Omnichannel is uh, is so basically is uh, is a concept has to be existing similar ways has been for for decades like uh, before we have this catalog shopping but now with the digital revolution that put uh, this uh, convenience and choice as a customer's choice you have a mobile you have internet so all these different ways of interacting with the retailers we call it Omnichannel so with this all these options and convenience so that is. Be- you know, so, uh, the, the retailers have to, you know, want to integrate all these kind of things. Is put the complexity in this one, so we call it omni-channel. Is that high cost uh, setup uh, for something like that? For example, yes. For example, you you have to make sure your underlying infrastructure can you know satisfy the respond the customer needs, and meanwhile, you know, it can take taking care of the cost underneath, so satisfy demand. So it's all about you know, on one side you want to meet the customer personalized. Requirement. On the other hand, you have to make sure it's profitable for your organization. Give me another example of how retailers can, say, better position themselves uh, to take advantage of some of these new technologies to connect with consumers. So there's multiple ways. Right? They, they can uh, in, uh, uh, increase their online presence, uh, presence uh, with the online store or their web store. On the other hand, you know, they are increasing this digital marketing through the social apps like the WeChat or Weibo to influence the customer's uh, you know, uh, behavior and uh, in, uh, be, put a bigger exposure on the, on, on the market. So that is uh, how they can you know, adapt, adapt in this, this new trend.
All right, Mr. Liu, thank you for joining us here on the program. Thank you very much. Liu Yufeng, Managing Director of Manhattan Associates in Greater China. Let's check the markets here. Before we go out today, uh, the Nikkei is is up 22 points, and that is a gain of about two-tenths of 1%. Looks like uh, markets uh, could be mixed today because Australia and Seoul are slightly lower. Well, it brings us uh, towards the end of the program, uh, wrapping up with a look at um, gold and oil. Gold is trading now at $1,259.80, and oil price is $109.52. And a weather today, mainly cloudy with some showers, a maximum temperature about 31 degrees. We are looking at sunshine, though, and just a chance of showers over the next couple of days. Maximum temperature today should be right around 31 degrees. Back chat coming up next right after the news. The news with Samantha Butler. The United States has warned that the jihadist group, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIS, poses a threat to the entire region after its fighters seized control of the key city of Mosul in northern Iraq. Tens of thousands of residents have fled into the neighboring region of Kurdistan. From Washington, here's the BBC's Regina Vajinathan. Officials here in Washington say the situation in Iraq remains extremely serious and that they're continuing to track events closely with the Iraqi government as well as leaders across the political spectrum. They say the threat posed by the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, the militant group which has taken control of Mosul, is not just limited to Iraq. They believe the group's gaining strength from the ongoing situation in Syria, where it recruits and picks up sophisticated weapons. Fifteen South Korean crew members have gone on 